0: This is the future of finance by Motive Labs.
1: Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Mohit Joshi, president at Infosys. Welcome. Thank you, Sam. Very good to be here. Excellent to have you. Infosys' reputation extends far and wide. It's become an enormous firm internationally. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the firm. You've been there for, I think, near on two decades now, although you don't look it. (laughs) And, And a little bit about your background as well.
0: Sure, Sam. So I've been with Infosys for about 18 years. And the firm was about, I think, about $180 million in annual revenues when I joined. And if you look at us today, with $11 billion in revenue, 200,000 people present in over 50 countries, right? And a truly global franchise. So it's been exciting the past 18 years. And my own journey with Infosys has taken me across multiple countries, multiple continents. So, you know, I started off in a business development role in Boston back in December 2000, moved to New York for a couple of years to look at our financial services portfolio there, moved from New York to Mexico to set up our first Latin America subsidiary. And then in 2009, moved here to London. You know, it's been an exciting journey. And I think in a sense, it also reflects, you know, how small and how global the world has become. I think the growth of a company like Infosys, which is, you know, headquartered out of India, but gets over 95% of its revenue from outside India, that has 200,000 employees across the world that works with most of the Fortune 500 companies just over the past uh, you know, 15 to 18 years is reflective of, I think, the importance of technology in the world, but also to the degree to which globalization has meant that firms now operate with employees and with clients and with partners really across the globe.
1: Wow. So... Under your uh, your stewardship and during your tenure, emphasis as revenue has grown by over a hundredfold. Yes,
0: yes. I'd like to take most of the credit, card of course. <laughs> but uh.
1: <laughs> that's quite incredible. And, and you really are a global citizen: Boston, New York, Mexico, London. Yeah, we're very pleased you're here in London. As you know, I'm fiercely patriotic, and uh, London is one of the the truly great cities. It is. And I think, despite Brexit, it will actually give us a great inflection point and an opportunity to continue to grow thereafter. Mm. you know the brit's have always had a very diverse base of residency and citizen yes. and have been responsible for many of the great inventions around the world so i'm hoping that our next chapter in history continues to be more of, of course
0: and i agree with that i think uh, london is a very special place having lived in new york and in london and obviously having grown up in India, I have to say that it is truly a global city. And the advantages it confers to somebody working in a global business in terms of time zone, in terms of travel, Mm -hmm. in terms of the availability of expertise within the city is truly unique. And uh, while I do think uh, Brexit will have some sort of an impact, I feel the intrinsic strengths of the city over the long run will allow London to overcome it.
1: Mm -hmm. And also, I guess that geographic point you just made, you're you're traveling all around the world at the moment. I I know you are from Dubai to LA, I think, in just a couple of weeks. London's position becomes very useful for that.
0: Of course. You know, know, if you're running a global business, then this is the perfect place to be in because you're at sort of the midpoint, right, of the time zone span that really for global business extends all the way from LA and San Francisco to Sydney and Melbourne, right? And you're bang in the middle of that, uh, which is a very unique advantage. You know, I envy the weather that my friends in the West Coast uh, sort of enjoy on a day-to-day basis. But if you think of it, they've got to get up at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, right, to make a conference call, which is 6 o'clock in New York, yeah. right, and, you know, either 10 or 11 o'clock in London.
1: Well, I like to think of London or the UK as never never too hot, never too cold. Yes. Um, <laughs> always a little bit too wet. <laughs> Part of what we've just been speaking about, in fact, with London is is exactly why our financial services landscape has boomed here. But on your journey around the world and in the the different places that that you've added value and spent Mm. time, have you seen the financial services landscape change? It's shifted a huge amount. And I'm sure the changing relationships, stakeholders, um, trends, booms and busts have given you great insight into both what's happened, also where you see the industry going.
0: Of course I am. Before I joined Infosys, I used to actually work in banking, right? So while a lot of my career within Infosys has focused on working with, you know, with banks and with other financial institutions as a technology partner, I spent five years as a banker, right? First with ANZ in India and then with ABN AMRO. Uh, And I can tell you that uh, the change is uh, nothing short of tectonic, right? It's very remarkable. I still remember when I first walked into ANZ back in 96, As a management trainee, you just saw heaps and heaps of paper everywhere, right? When I was doing my sort of... uh I would say internship within the trade department, for instance, if you had uh, an import transaction or an export transaction, there'd be somebody coming in with reams of paper, which included the bill of lading, a packing list, you know, a bank confirmation. You know, if you wanted to write a credit memorandum, for instance, that would actually be a physical piece of paper that would move from location to location. And if you compare it with what we have now, a couple of things come to mind. One is obviously the role of technology, right, in terms of just the digitization of mm-hmm. processes that you've seen. I think that is one significant part. But beyond that, there is the globalization of business, right? At the end of the day, you have a lot more Chinese financial institutions, a lot more Latin American financial institutions that have become you know, significant players on the world scale. So I think uh, globalization is the second part of the transformation of uh, mm-hmm. finance. And I think the third part I'd add is, it is more about the ecosystem now, right? So historically, if you spoke to banks, uh, you know, if you spoke to a Goldman, they were only interested in what a Morgan Stanley was doing or what a JP Morgan was doing. Nobody had any interest in what a Macy's was doing or what a Starbucks was doing, right? And fast forward to now, where there is so much of interest in cross-industry trends, so much of interest in uh, design we've just discussed a few anecdotes and a few themes but the transformation in the way that we live and work the way that financial services companies deal with uh, their employees with their clients with the community is nothing short of a revolution right
1: i couldn't agree more yeah you know, our methodology and, and thesis at motive is this sort of just trying to be a convening platform in the industry yes absolutely. of capital regulators, institutions, technology providers, is exactly that. We're just trying to continue to add to the ecosystem. And things like regulatory trends, like like open banking, are only yeah. adding to that, opening it up, making it more accessible, more transparent. Mm. There are a ton of new technologies out there, uh, and, and most of them are buzzwords, from DLT to machine learning. Yeah. There are also a ton of new models out there, you know, banks are moving away from a deposit on file, to subscription as a service, click fees, and utilities are becoming ever more an opportunity to lower cost spaces and become more focused on competitive areas of the business. What do you think are the next big opportunities, the big value creation opportunities? And it may may be that they're in financial services or, or outside.
0: Sure. You know, if you take the financial services industry as an example, right? But even if you look at it more broadly across industries, what is the role of technology? The role of technology is really to dramatically amplify and speed up. Human capabilities, right? That's essentially what technology is doing. And so, if we look at it in the context of the financial services business, I feel that there are three key imperatives, right, that the industry has. The first has to do with, and this is especially true in the aftermath of the financial crisis, is to improve the basic economics of the business, to industrialize very rapidly, to look at the cost to income sort of ratio and see how that could be improved uh, to work towards getting a better return on equity. And so, this cost side equation of uh, the business means that you have to embrace automation, you've got to embrace artificial intelligence. This means adopting platforms and therefore maybe socializing costs across multiple players. This means a much tighter linkage between business and operations. This means the adoption of the public cloud, you know, from a cost perspective. And so I feel that there are significant initiatives which are focused on industrializing the financial services business. But then, you know, you've got the flip side, right? You also need to digitize the business. You need to become digital. You need to figure out a way to engage with and to bring in new consumers and to allow existing consumers to interact with you a lot more effectively. Mm -hmm. The challenge and the opportunity really is on the digital side is I feel that there's not a single financial institution in the world, not one, that is really at the center of a client's financial life in the way that an Apple device is at the center of your technology life. If you think of it, we were just having a conversation around the fact that you know that uh, this iPad or this phone allows you to consume media, allows you to make notes, uh, allows you to connect with the world either through the phone or through the email, right? So this device is really at the center of your technology life. There is no such... Sort of example of a financial institution, which is really at the heart of of a client's, you know, financial life. And if you think of the data that banks have about you, about your consumption, really, the models of the future are probably going to look a lot like what uh, you know an Alipay is doing, or what a Paytm is doing in India, where banking is one thing that you know that the organization does for you. But it also exposes you to a huge host of ecosystem participants Mm -hmm. and to other partners, right? So I feel that the digitization piece, the digital piece of the transformation of financial services has several elements to it, right? There's the element of experience. Banks have historically not focused on experience, but that is a very key thing now. Everybody wants an Apple-like or an Amazon-like experience. Mm -hmm so experience is the first part the second part is about insight about data you know we've known you sam as a you know maybe a savings account or a current account customer for many years depending on your life stage when do we offer you a mortgage when do we offer you insurance when do we help you plan your estate taxes when do we plan for your kids education when do we plan your next holiday a lot of that will come from insight Digital is also a lot about innovation, right? How do we embrace, let's say, the Internet of Things and bring it into banking? Mm-hmm. Digital is about accelerating the move to the cloud. You spoke about open banking. How do we get open APIs and you know the microservices architecture into banks? And finally, the move towards digital has to do with security. So much of our data now on the internet is potentially accessible to criminals and to, you know, to people who should not have access to it. So as banks become more digital, these are the five things they need to focus on. Experience, data or insight, innovation, acceleration, and finally, assurance or security. And so you've got the need to industrialize, the need to become more digital. Both of these also mean that the organizations themselves need to change, right? So organizations need to become a lot more agile. Like we discussed, they need to work more effectively with ecosystem partners. And they really need to embrace a culture of lifelong learning. And I feel that organizations that are able to be cost-efficient and be innovative and creative and be able to transform the ways in which they work. And this is really across industries, right? These are the organizations that will dominate the future.
1: It's the perfect answer. Thank you, because I couldn't have put it anywhere near as eloquently, but those five areas do require businesses to evolve. I think one of the, Great next frontiers or, or, or battles will be around how we increase productivity. Yes, Productivity is, is something that we don't think about enough, given yes. the general pressures we're under from, from technology. That then leads me on quite nicely to the topic of talent. Emphasis of their project genesis, which is pioneering the way for large employers to innovate and provide input into the educational system. One of the things that we've championed hard in the UK, and I know that yes. emphasis is at the forefront of as well, yes. is talent. Yes. How do we continue to bring the right talent into both the UK, mm. what can the regulator maybe do to help that, but also into your company?
0: I think this is going to be the challenge uh, for at least the next generation, right? If you look at it and, you know, we all work in technology, right, which by itself has seen so much of change over the past many years. But like I mentioned, when I came into Infosys back in 2000, maybe we had to retrain people every couple of years right because technology cycles were changing and so people who knew mainframe for instance in 2000 by 2000 and you know four or five needed to also understand java or the net architecture but if you look at it now technology trends technology platforms are changing on a very regular basis right sometimes every 6 months and so this old model of you know having sort of learning interventions every couple of years is not working also the old model of top-directed learning is not working because there's only so much that can happen just by pushing people, right? I think a lot needs to happen in terms of micro-learning. So how can we make sure you're learning every day? And our goal within the company is to make sure that everybody in the company, all of our 200,000 employees, are really maybe spending 30 minutes every day learning. How do we make that effective? How do we give them the digital platforms Mm -hmm. and the tools to allow them to learn? How can we build the community so that they can also understand what other people are learning and therefore learn with them? How do we test the fact that they've learned effectively? How do we get the results of their learning back into their appraisal systems? But most importantly, how do we motivate people to learn new things? And it is in the last piece that I'm very encouraged that there is such a hunger to learn. I'll just give you one example, you know, just about a year ago, we decided to set up a hackathon within the company to select a hundred people who we teach, you know, autonomous driving technology, right? And we figured that we'd probably get about, you know, 500 or 700 people to show up for the hundred positions that we had. We had 7,000 people show up. And I think this is just a reflection of the fact that if you're able to make a learning infrastructure available, and you know, you're able to spread the word, people are hungry to learn. Making sure that they have both the classroom interventions as well as the digital platforms available to them to learn is very important. And in this sense, we're investing very heavily, as you mentioned, we're investing very heavily in building the traditional college campus type facility. So, we have the world's largest corporate training university in India, in Mysore. We're also building out a gigantic facility in Indianapolis in the US over a 70 acre campus to build the same sort of infrastructure for North America. And we'll be looking to build the same infrastructure in the UK and Europe, which is a very significant market for us. So it is a mix of making sure that you're able to motivate people to want to learn. It is building the physical infrastructure, the campuses, the whole suite of PhDs and you know uh, professors, but also making sure that you're able to build a truly world-class digital platform where people can consume learning mm-hmm. as and when they want. They can read it online, they can read it offline, you can listen to a podcast on your way back from work, you can test yourself you know, while you're walking to the office or having a quick bite. So we want to make learning so comprehensive and so available that people are sort of motivated to learn a lot more because I feel intuitively people realize right that even for very skilled workers, if they don't upgrade their skills over the next 10 years or so, they will be redundant.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I love that idea of micro-learning. You think about diversification of thought leadership and, and actually diversification of education. How do you teach people in your workforce to think differently yes. to evolve their, their thought processes? You mentioned micro-learning. I fear I may have become too good at micro-learning because I can <laughs> barely read a book these days. I'm so used to taking in bite-sized bits of information all right. the time. Right. So that's one thing I hope we don't, we don't lose as uh, as no, mankind is that ability to ingest information over the long term as well yes um Mohit, each year we've had a, a motive the great pleasure of co-hosting with you guys you guys, as, as the main host, of the World Economic Forum's Global FinTech Nightcap. Yeah. It's been a bigger success year on year. Last year, you were on stage with a number of our friends and global bank CEOs yes. talking about where the world's going yeah. and then enjoying that over, over some drinks and canapes and discussing our thoughts for the week at the, at the forum. There's been a, a huge amount of talk in recent years over the technology players. Yeah. It was one of the themes that came up last year. Yeah. Do you envisage that we end up inviting some of these technology players alongside the banks, perhaps this year or next year, or or do you think that the banks should stick together?
0: No, I think you look on a more lighthearted sort of note, right? When I think of banks interacting with really with the Silicon Valley players, like an Apple or an Amazon or a Google, right? I think the appropriate example is the model of dealing with grief, right? There is denial, you know apple will never sort of uh, enter my space why would they want to enter the space there is anger how can we have this silicon valley firm come in and potentially take over a portion of our revenues there is bargaining you know let's get to maybe to an apple pay type situation where we give you part of the fees Then at the end of the stage comes acceptance, right? Acceptance comes after grief. You know, I'm losing so much of my revenue potentially to these Silicon Valley firms. And finally, there's acceptance. The acceptance that there is a role for uh, technology players and for banks. I think banks have a unique role to play within the ecosystem. There is a deep understanding of behavioral economics in terms of how clients and customers actually spend. There are relationships that span hundreds of years, right? Not merely decades. There is a deep understanding of risk. There's an understanding of asset and liability management, an understanding of regulatory concerns and regulatory challenges. So banks, I think, are uniquely placed to work with the technology firms to really expand the scope of what they do, right? Get beyond transactions, get at the heart of a customer's financial life. And so I feel that, you know, along with Motive, you know, we'd be delighted to welcome technology companies, to welcome nonprofits, and to welcome banks into an endeavor, right? This annual event that we do is really an endeavor to imagine the future of finance together. And I feel that all the participants have an equally valid role over there.
1: I like that a lot. I may have to reuse that, the model of <laughs> grief. And we're going to turn it on its head and go straight for acceptance. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, you, you know the World Economic Forum very well, better than most. It really is quite a remarkable institution. Sometimes slam for being elitist, but I think actually the, at the core of it are some very, very important global missions to improve the state of the world. You've been a global leader for... A little bit of time now. I yes. have to be careful because it's uh, four years. Yeah, for four years. Perhaps you could, could talk a little bit about what it means to be a, a World Economic Forum global leader and a global leader. You're up alongside the likes of Macron, Larry Page, Mark Zuckerberg, some of the real greats of, uh, and captains of industry. Yes. Maybe you could say a little bit about what that process is like and what it means to you.
0: Sure. So Sam, I think, you know, it's a remarkable program, right? It brings together people from industry, entrepreneurs, people who work in nonprofits, academics, because there's a realization that what happens over time is that unfortunately, our circle grows narrower and narrower, right? So, over time, especially as we get into our 30s, 40s, and 50s, essentially you're dealing with more and more people who either work in your business or work around your business. The opportunity to meet new people who can spark off new ideas and lead to, let's say, a creative train of thought is lost because, you know, the possibility of meeting an academic who's focused on, let's say, land tenure reform in Uganda is next to none, right? Or the opportunity to meet a designer. Who's focused on, let's say, you know, eyeglasses in Milan is very limited. Mm. So I feel that uh, the World Economic Forum does a huge service by bringing together inquiring and curious minds from across the world from different industries. And this is where you get an opportunity to, A, focus on the WEF score mission, which is improving the state of the world, but also working on several sort of bilateral initiatives. But most importantly, from my perspective, just enriching your knowledge and widening your vision to what is possible because, as I mentioned, over time, our vision tends to shrink into, you know, into more of a tunnel vision of our industries and our city, and you know the work that we do. Uh, this really allows you to expand your mind.
1: That's a fantastic soundbite. And a final question: I ask it every time. Sure. The listeners love it. Yeah. Particularly as, as they listen to many of their role models on, yes. on this podcast. You've had an incredible career so far, and I'm sure you know, it's still early days. There's there's a, a long way to go. But I'm sure you've had some some role models and, and mentors in your career. Can you maybe name check one or two of them and explain the relationship you had and how you benefited from it?
0: Sure, absolutely, Sam. So I think, look, obviously, you know, like everybody else, the first set of mentors you get are your parents, right? And, you know, my father, till he retired, used to work for the government of India in a fairly senior role. My mother was an academic and then a journalist. So picked up a lot from them in terms of just the value of work We moved around a lot when I was a child, so that taught you a lot of resilience and in terms of you know working with and in new environments. Mm-hmm. When I started work, especially at Infosys, I think the founders uh, were a huge influence on my life. The sort of focus on humility and modesty while being immensely successful and running very large businesses, the sort of laser-like focus on integrity, the focus on building a sustainable business, right? So a sustainable business for our clients, for our employees, for our communities. I think all of this had a very significant impact in me. More recently, actually, just about two or three years ago, I signed on to a program where I actually have two sort of formal mentors now. And one of them is uh, servin Bischoff, who was the chairman of Citigroup and the chairman of Lloyd's. And Servin, you know, uh, was born in I think 1944 in Germany, grew up in South Africa, worked for a very long time in Asia, and now is you know one of the great grandees of uh, financial services. So just the deep understanding he brings to the space of human relationships, of how you know business works, and you know how people think and define their own purpose in life. I think has been been immensely useful to me. The second has been Vindi Banga, who was the president at Unilever and the chairman of Marks & Spencer and now a very successful partner in a private equity firm. I think Vindi has, again, with somebody who's worked across multiple industries in multiple countries, has allowed me to sort of, uh, the best mentors really put a mirror in front of you, right? They put a mirror in front of you with your strengths and your weaknesses. And the fact that they believe in you allows you to Believe yourself, then, that you can do remarkable things. So I've had a a significant number of mentors, you know, uh, throughout my life. And we spoke about learning, right? So from my own perspective as well, I'm always very keen to learn, right? To learn, to grow as a human being. All of us are nowhere near the limit of what we can possibly accomplish if we put our minds to it. And I feel that mentorship, especially formal mentorship, plays a huge role in that. I feel that once we get to, you know, 30s and 40s, I'm 44. Sometimes there's a reluctance to, you know, to embrace mentorship because it is not a sign of weakness, you know, mm-hmm. it is a sign of your willingness to grow. And for those of your listeners who are looking at mentorship as an option, I'd really encourage them to embrace it because, you know, both formal and informal mentors have a huge role to play in
1: enriching your sense of what is possible. Thank you. Wow. What a um, what an insightful answer. I really appreciate that. And Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I I love that. The continued learning is a great place to end. We should all hope to continue to learn. Thank you, Mohit. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure. That was fantastic. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next
2: time.